Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Use that table of contents if you need to know uh, where to go. There was a survey done, a survey done, and it was interesting. It asked people, grown people, what did you want to be when you grow up? When you were younger and you were dreaming about growing up one day, what was it that you wanted to be? So can you remember that? Can, can, those of you who are sitting here, can you remember what it was that you want? I want you to just kind of share that with the person next to you. Let them know, I wanted to be—go ahead and tell them. Let them know what that is. It's not a secret. I see some of you like holding your—it's not a secret. Just kind of share it. Yeah, everybody had one of those, you know. If you're watching online, throw that in the comments. What did you want to be when you grow up? Here's the cool thing about the survey. They went on to ask these people, did you become that thing? Did you become the thing that you wanted to be when you grew up? And the results were less than 10% of people grew up to be the thing that they wanted to be as a child. So let me ask you now, show of hands, how many of you grew up to be the thing that you wanted to be? Look, it's just a few people. That's really amazing and really kind of cool. I want to I hear about this more. The results were pretty obvious, the sort of thing that you would imagine. A lot of community service type of things like uh, a police officer or, or a vet. Uh, a lot of people want to be vets when, the, when they're young, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of them had to deal with fame and money like uh, professional athletes, maybe a famous musician. These are things that people wanted to be when they grew up because when you're little— you know, you're thinking about these things and our jobs, our tasks, our nine to fives, they have a lot to do with our, with our identity, with the, with the way that we see ourselves. When I was little, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be that since I can remember. I think since I w- could speak, I wanted to be a lawyer. Not a real lawyer. I had no idea what a real lawyer was, right? It had no basis in reality, but that's the cool thing about dreams. They don't have to be based in reality. I neither wanted to be a, pro- a prosecutor nor a defense attorney. I wanted to be both. I wanted to prosecute only the bad guys and never make a mistake and defend only those who were wrongly accused. That's what I, w- I don't know exactly what that's called. Um, that's the dream that I had. It had something to do with Matt Law and law and order and in the heat of the night and a few good men, all of that all mixed together was what I wanted to be when I grew up. How many of you have not thought about in the heat of the night in a long, long time, right? That's a good show. That's a good show. Um, This is what I wanted to do. And the thing about uh, our jobs and our life, like I said, it has a lot to do with our identity. It also has a lot to do with, you know, the worth of our bank accounts, right? What you do. Um, Those tend to kind of coincide. It also, sadly, but reality, has a lot to do with with our self-worth, the way that we see ourselves. And, And this topic, this huge topic that plays so much into our identity and our worth, the way we perceive others and the way we think that others perceive us, is the topic this morning in Ecclesiastes, the Koheleth, the teacher, the preacher, the one who draws together the Koheleth in Hebrew, is going to share with us some thoughts about your job. All right, are y'all ready to hear these? This is what the ancient preacher thinks about your job. Before we do that, let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement and the challenge that our work is not in vain, that it is not 
just Hevel, but God, that we can reflect you to a broken and a hurting world through the way that we do our work. So God, I pray today that our hearts would be challenged. We will be motivated to be different, to enjoy our work and to glorify you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen. So I want to read the text to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 begins with all of those uh, for every season, turn, turn, turn um, phrases there. It goes, a time to give birth, a time to die, etc. My favorite one is there is uh, verse 5, a time to throw stones. The Bible says there is a time to throw rocks. I'm I'm just saying that's what the Bible says. So I I don't know when that time is, um, but the Koheleth believes that. Verse 9 says, what does a worker gain from his struggles? Or her struggles. I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam, that's all humanity, to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate or beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his acts. I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking away from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been and whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. This is, like I said, an interesting topic of our work. Did you know that one-third of your life, on average, is spent working? And that's sort of humbling and sobering when you think that there's another third of your life that is spent sleeping. So a great deal of your life is spent working, and not just your nine-to-five, not just the the job you have so that you can get a paycheck, but also consider um, that that one-third does not include all the chores that you do, all of the cleaning and the taking care of the house and the raising the children and participating in the family affairs, that we spend a great deal of our lives working, of doing work and of laboring. The Koheleth calls this struggle, toil, or labor. He says, what does the worker gain from his struggles? Your text might say uh, difficulties or toil or labor. These are all the sort of the negative ways that we talk about our jobs, right? Nobody refers to their jobs as just a dream, not for very long. Even if you have a dream job, then um, after a while, it starts to kind of wear you down, right? And there's a number of reasons for that. I have two main reasons. These are just from my observations, and I think that maybe you could add to them as well. These are the two reasons that I believe that people talk about their jobs negatively or that we don't like our work. The first one is the end result. One of the reasons, the main reasons we do not like our work is because of the end result. It doesn't always work out the way that you thought it would, all right? We've already observed that by show of hands, most of us did not, if you are retired, or do not do work 
um, that we planned on doing in the first place. And how many of you have had the experience of once you got a job, you find out that what they said in the interview process is not exactly what the job is, right? It's almost always more paperwork. My wife told me that she saw a thing online that says we all have the same job, and that's answering emails. Everybody has the exact same job, and it's answering emails. We feel like sometimes our labor is pointless. In chapter 2, verse 18, Kohela says that I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. Kohela did not have a very good view of a succession plan. He thought, I'm doing all this hard work, and then eventually some other person is going to take my job, and they're not nearly as smart as me. I don't know who they are, but they're just not as smart or as good at this as I am. Have you ever thought about that? I'll be honest with you. Until I read this passage, I've never really thought about, like, one day some other fool is going to do all of this, and I'm, I'm just wasting my time. You ever felt that way? Apparently this really bothers him. If you read all of Ecclesiastes, this really sticks in his crawl. There's another thing. Have you ever looked around at your work because of the results or the lack of results? Have you ever just looked around and thought to yourself, what good is any of this? Now, I know you know that like um, if, you, uh, if you change oil for a living, that, that you get that. Like, okay, this is what oil does, and this is how their vehicle, and this is what the service industry does, that sort of stuff. You get that point. You get A to B and what you're producing. You get that. But have you ever just stood back and said, like in the grand scheme of things, God, did you create me to change oil? Is that what you created to run events, to run this company, or, or to sell these things? Have you ever stepped back and just felt like, what good is any of this? Anybody? Are you willing to admit that? If your boss is not in the room, can you say, I'm not real sure that this matters at all. Verse 22 of chapter 2, Kohela says, What does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors under the sun? What do you get out of this? It's kind of pointless. That's what he feels. The other reason is not only the end result, but it's the daily grind, right? How many of you just kind of feel like if I could just get this accomplished, it'd be good. If I could get the results, it would be amazing. But I can't get to the result. Why? Why? Because it is a daily beating. Anybody ever feel like your work is just a beating? And you're like, you know, I don't want to complain. I'm thankful for my job. I know other people would like this job, but I just can't stand these people that I work with. Anybody that way? Anybody that way? You're feeling like I never have enough resources. I never have enough time. I never have the help that I need, those sort of things. You just kind of feel like the daily grind is such a beating. Hard work, and that's why we call it work, all right? You feel that way? Anybody relate to this? It's the result, and it's the daily grind. If I could ever get through these things, then it would work out a lot better. The Koheleth calls this Hebel. Chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This too is futile. It is hebel. It's just worthless. It seems like it matters. It seems like at times you are making an impact, but when you are all done and you turn around, nothing. Nothing to show for all of that work that I spent the whole week, the whole month, the whole last season doing. Hebel, he says, I think all of this is something that we can agree with. 
Now, I don't want to get really depressed. I don't want all of you to be like, man, I really hated Mondays, but now Monday is looking even worse. That's not what I'm wanting you to do. I just want us to get to the point that whether or not you're retired or you have somewhere to go tomorrow, whether it's this long laundry list of things to do at your home or if it's the boss that's breathing down your neck, I think we can all get to the point where we feel like verse 9 says it for us. Like, what do you get out of all of this? What good is my work. This passage takes an interesting shift at this point. And uh, it, it's similar to, to times that we've asked these questions before. It begins with this very obvious question. He says, what does the worker gain from his struggles? And then it goes on not to answer that question. And I feel like that's something I do a lot in preaching. I'm like, hey, here's a question that the Bible asks that we all agree with, and then the Bible doesn't answer that question. I just want to point that out because what I feel like the Bible does for us, and this is helpful, is it shows us that oftentimes we're asking questions. We're asking even good, solid questions. It's just we're asking the wrong question, but at least we're asking the right person. So here's what's happening in the next couple of verses. It goes from the idea of results or profit to God. God and work. It's not about you and what you get out of your job. That's what the Bible is sort of trying to teach us. It focus, the focus moves from what do I get out of it to this idea of what God intended by it. It's not what do I profit from my job. It's what did God intend by my job. What role does God have in my life and in my day job and in my chores? Am I keeping this house moving and this raising these kids? Here, here's a couple of things. These aren't going to be on the board behind me, but I just want to kind of share them with you. These are six observations from those next uh, couple of verses there that teach us about what the Koheleth believes about work. Verse 10, it says that it is a gift from God, that work is given by God. James will tell us that God is a good father who gives good gifts. Jesus says the same thing. And so I know that you would probably have a, a point to argue on this, that your job is not necessarily a good, good gift from our good father. But at the same time, let's just hold that right there. You would, you would probably argue that your work is from the devil and it's not a very good job. But let's just hold it and just maybe it's a possibility that your work is actually a gift. Verse 11 tells us that everything is appropriate or it is beautiful. That work itself is beautiful. We notice the beauty of work or labor, and I'm trying to break our minds away from just your nine to five. Think about the Olympics right now. The Olympics are on, and if you are scanning through there, any of y'all like really into the Olympics? Anybody? Okay, good. I'll, I'll still make the joke I was about to make. If you were, uh, if you're scanning through television and you accidentally stop on the Olympics and you have nothing better in your whole life to do, and you start watching the Olympics for just a minute there, every time you do that, it is unbelievably impressive what these people can do um, with just themselves, right? You know, just like twisting and turning and jumping and leaping and all this sort of stuff. And there is beauty in that. But that is the result of work. And we see that sort of beauty in there. And verse 11 teaches us, but it's not just that whenever a veterinarian delivers a calf or a surgeon repairs a tear or a mathematician unlocks the meaning of numbers or a teacher inspires a mind, we see in the world very clearly the beauty of work. We see that sort of thing. Next it says, staying with the same verse, that work is the outworking of an eternal desire that is written on our hearts. 
says that God put this eternal perspective on our hearts. And so in that, we want to participate in the greater good of creation. When we labor, when we change oil or weld or teach or, or executive, whenever we do these sort of things, whenever we nurse and doctor and, and, and administer and, and work, whenever we do these things, we are participating in the greater good of creation. We are participating in the society. We are participating in a world that God has established in order and beauty. That eternal desire in our hearts is fleshed out in our labor. Those three things seem to just focus on the idea of work as a gift, as beautiful, as participation. But then it shifts slightly and zeroes in on God himself. Verse 11 and many of the verses will speak about God working. We notice that God works. It says that the work that God has done— When you read your Bible, you see this all the time. And I know in our minds, we don't really picture God laboring, but he does. We find out in scripture that God spoke, he created, he formed humans by his own hands, kneeling down in the dirt and forming humans. Repeatedly, the Bible speaks about God working out his plans and defending his people. Exodus says that your God will fight for you. You need only to be silent. That verse alone tells you to not God will. God works. In verse 14, we see that God's work is described as eternal. This factor, this detail calls our attention to the non-hebel of reality, meaning that there is a lot of work that we do that feels like it is pointless, but when we participate in what God has done, we are participating in something that is going to last for all of eternity. When we work For the glory of God and the good of others, we are not doing something that is pointless, no matter how weightless it may seem. We are doing things, participating in God's good order throughout life. This verse is interesting because of those eight verses previously where it says there's a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that. That we are bound by the temporal, but God is eternal in his work. And then in verse 14 and 15, God's work is done as awe-inspiring. We see God's amazing handiwork, his work done all over the, the place, all of the time. The Bible says that God put wisdom in our minds and allows us to speak. He taught us to talk. He taught us how to communicate to one another. We see it in the beauty and in the form of your spouse. You see it in the, 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 uh, the combination of the two of you and in a child and, and your personality in that of a child. We see it in um, a newborn child, a flower, the waterfalls near the Buffalo River. We see it in a shelf cloud and a thunderstorm, constellations, and in canyons, the waves on the northwest seashore. And all this handiwork is the amazing abilities of God. God does amazing work. And when we work, we are reflecting our God to a broken world. That's the perspective. That's the standpoint of the teacher as he speaks highly of work. So think about it for just a second. If I was to tell you that there's this book in the Bible named Ecclesiastes that calls things like they are, it says, oh, that over there, that's hevel, and that over there, that's pointless, and that over there, that won't last, then you would think, surely, in in this book, then it's going to describe work the same way that I describe work. It's going to think of my job the same way that I think of my job. It's going to think of my chores and my to-do list and all of this honeydew stuff the same way. It stinks. You can take this job and, well, you know, 
That's what Ecclesiastes is going to say. But it doesn't. It doesn't say that. When you read Ecclesiastes, what you find is this lifting up of work that of all the things, romance and power and education, all this kind of stuff, of all the things, it seems to have this esteemed view of work, of labor. But how and why? Why does the preacher, why does the teacher think highly of work? Well, I find it to be in um, verse 13. And I'll be honest with you, I've read Ecclesiastes several times in the last couple of weeks, and this phrase has captivated me. It has just captured my attention, and I want to explain why. I was so excited to preach this sermon because of this phrase. Here's what verse 13 says. It is, work is, also the gift of God, a good gift from God. And whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts, that's a gift. And and this part we get. I understand, right? Eating and drinking a gift from God that we enjoy, we understand that part. We like to eat. We like to drink. Those are good gifts. I know in our hyper-fitness culture, food has become the enemy, but it's not. Food is good. Food is a good gift from God, all right? So eating and drinking, these are good gifts from God, but efforts? This is just another way. He says this five times in Ecclesiastes, and it always refers to work or to labor. Our work, our toil, our struggle, our struggle, our soul-sucking jobs and the endless to-do list and the never-ending pursuit of getting ahead or just breaking even, that, that is a gift from God? Well, yeah. On uh, social media, I posted the phrase, how would you finish this phrase? Eat, drink, and... And I really wasn't looking for anything clever or funny, but the internet being the internet, people started answering that in all sorts of funny ways. Eat, drink, and burp, one person said. Eat, drink, and take a nap. In fact, it was comical how many people put take a nap after eat and drink. That was the number one phrase. Eat, drink, and take a nap. One father said, eat, drink, and put your dishes in the sink before you go back outside. (laughs) It's a number of ways to finish it. And to be honest with you, I was only looking for one ending. There was only one thing that I was looking for. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the way that I, I would have, I would have bet that most people would have finished that phrase. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's a common phrase in our literature, in our history, in movies. In fact, one of the um, ways that you could end it, and I'm sure that you know what it is. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Yeah, that's uplifting, right? That's good. It kind of is, but it kind of isn't. Eat, drink, and be merry. So what's going on with that? Because Ecclesiastes never says that, not one time. The Bible does say that, eat, drink, and be merry, but it is only used in the negative. There's never a good, there's a story Jesus tells about this uh, rich guy who built these barns, and he says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. For tomorrow I die. And so it's never a good phrase. So what's going on with that place? Now, EDM is electronic dance music. That's not what I'm talking about. I just don't want to say eat, drink, and be merry a bunch of times. All right? So EDM means, it means that first and foremost, that the goal is for me to be happy. This common cultural way of understanding life, this worldview, eat, drink, and be merry, is all about me being happy that I would do what it takes to be happy, but 
what if it doesn't work? What if you eat, drink, and fake a smile, and everything's not happy, happy, joy, joy? What do we do? We eat more, and we drink more, and we buy more, and we get more. We throw our lives into this thinking that at some point, if I eat enough, if I drink enough, if I consume enough, if I have enough, if I give myself enough, if all limitations are off, eat, drink, then I will be happy. And the goal is for me to be happy. Another thing, EDM not only says that the goal is to be happy, but there is no goal. That's another way to understand eat, drink, and be merry, because after this, nothing matters. I just die. There's nothing else after this. And so I'll just eat, drink, and do whatever I want. Because when I'm gone, my decisions don't affect anybody. Nothing lasts past my own funeral service. And besides all of the blatantly selfish and superficial reasons why that's not going to work, it's also counterproductive. I'm not sure how you could say eat, drink, and be merry because nothing matters. It just doesn't sound right. It sounds like your world philosophy would be eat, drink, and then blah. So in Ecclesiastes, five times it says, eat, drink, and enjoy your work. Nobody's putting that on a pillow, all right? Nobody's cross-stitching that into something or making a t-shirt that says, eat, drink, and get to work. Nobody's doing that besides maybe your boss, right? Your boss, your, your, your boss. I was going to say something else, but I dropped it. <laughs> eat, drink, and enjoy your work. And so how do you do that? How does anybody do that? Well, ironically, in Ecclesiastes, the way that you do that is by embracing the Hebel point of view. The Hebel point of view. The Hebel point of view, remember, means this. That nothing matters. Nothing lasts. So ironically, in a sober-minded, mature way of living this life, that is how you enjoy your work by realizing the two things that make us hate our jobs, the result and the grind, are actually supposed to be that way. So here's what I'm trying to get at. The first thing is this. Because of the Hebel lifestyle, because you notice this, because you see this, that under the sun, the results never turn out quite the way that I want them to turn out, then what we should learn is not that work stinks— Instead, what we should learn is that you can't control what happens. You can't control the end result. Listen to me and hear me say this, and maybe repeat it in your own mind. You have no control over how this stuff turns out. I would love to lead a healthy, vibrant, community-changing church that loves each other and the stranger that boldly lives fearlessly, respects leadership and follows vision, that sacrifices for the good of others and the glory of God. But I have no control over that, you know? That's just my job. That's what, that's what I'm trying to lead people to do. But you know what I get to do? I stand up and preach what God says, and then I sit down and shut up because the results— are up to the spirits and up to whether or not you are willing to follow them. And the same is true about all of the jobs that we do. All of the jobs that you do. Or think about this, parenting. You have next to no control how your children turn out. The only people who think that they have control over how their children turn out either have never had children or have very small children, or they are fortunate enough to have adult children that are really great people and they're foolish enough to take the credit for that, all right? Because we all know, we all know that you have no control over that. 
You're just doing the best you can. You are to be faithful in your parenting and then leave the results to God, all right? So if you have horrible grown children, all right, you had no control over that, all right? So this is encouraging. This is uplifting, all right? Hebel. The other thing is not only do we have no control how these things turn out, which does not negate faithfulness. It just means I can't control the results. But also that the challenges that we are face, the grind, we see that as bad, but it's not bad. What the Kohelet teaches us is that these are good things, that the obstacles are good for us, that the challenges that we think get in our way of us attaining what we plan to accomplish are actually beautiful things. The preacher teaches us that the obstacles are beauty, that they are grit-forming, strength-creating lessons learned in our lives. They are what is actually forming us into and shaping us into the people that God wants us to be. It is the obstacles in our life. It is the challenges in our lives that are creating us to be more Christ-like. Think about it. Jesus Christ himself lived through the daily grind. It is hard. See, it is when we face obstacles that things amazing, beautiful things that reflect God like creativity, resourcefulness, teamwork, all of those come to the forefront. Nothing will kill the potential in an employee or in an organization faster than them having everything they want. Give a person everything they need and they can accomplish amazing things. Give them everything they want and they will do next to nothing. Obstacles form us. So the results I can't control and the obstacles are not bad. This is a Hebel point of view. And this, in this, when I relinquish the end results, then I enjoy the work because my work, my sweat, the, the, the product, the, the, the strength, my mind, what I am doing is actually glorifying to God. And this truth bears fruit most acutely in our eternal states, our spiritual life. Think about it. After thousands of years of people trying to earn a right standing with God and working for their salvation through animal sacrifices and ceremonial traditions, God, Jesus himself, labored in pain to purchase our salvation. He paid the price. He accomplished what we simply could never do. He secured the salvation and sealed it. The work is done and the results are not only pleasing to God, they are eternally secure in him. I have no control over the results, but he does. And he has sealed me. And so in response to the work that Jesus does, I relinquish all of my efforts to try to earn his favor. I'm not trying to make God uh, owe me eternal life. I am resting in the fact that Jesus has already purchased that for me. And so now all that is required is that I accept his work product, that we cease our attempts to achieve it for ourselves, that we accept that he has earned it and it is sufficient. One of the things that will get you in the most trouble as a Christian is to say you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and then to live your whole life like it wasn't good enough. That you still have to be good enough. That you still have to be perfect. But in that accepted work, then I now work out my salvation. I work from a point of view of being saved. Philippians 12 says, 
Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his purposes, to his good purposes. So you see, we flip the whole thing over. I have no control how everything will work out, but I'm just enjoying the work to reflecting to the world who my God is and trusting in what he has already accomplished. Let me give it to you like this. And this has been something that I have um, repeatedly said in my own mind over the last couple of weeks. The work is the reward. The labor is the joy. The effort is the blessing. Work is a good, good gift. I am trying no longer to look for some end results to save my happiness for. It's not about what's going to happen. It's about what is happening. I am not waiting to cross some finish line, wherever that is. And listen, that is a myth in life, that there is some finish line. And once you cross that, all the chores are done. You know the time when you finished the laundry? You remember that time? When all the dishes are done. No more dishes. The grass stops mowing. That doesn't happen. So stop getting frustrated that you have more work to do and enjoy our labor because work is the reward. When we use our creativity and sacrificial cooperation, when we move from good to great, we say a great deal about our God to the world that is, that has a hard time seeing him. It is so counterproductive to sit there and just enjoy the labor. This means that our workplace is our pulpits. Our nine to five is our sermon. Our children and our guiding them is our declaration that we are not in control, but that we recognize that God is work is the reward. I think this is something I want you to take with you out to your, your office, into your place, to your work truck, on the job. I want you to take this to your to-do list, all the stuff you've got to do around the house. Maybe, uh, not today, today is for rest, but maybe tomorrow, that sort of thing. I want you to take all of this in there and realize that this work is the reward. Enjoy the work that you get to do, but also think about it here at the church. Last Sunday night, nearly 300 people, almost the same amount of people that are in this room right now, were packed into this room as we were training and, and rallying and, and, and getting excited about the work we get to do in and through this church. Why? Because work is the reward. Work is our worship. That when we labor and we sweat, we sweat. For God's glory. I know that sounds gross, but that's true. I also want to say this. Just a side note, a real quick side note. I realize in our time and in our day and in our economics and our church that there are some of you watching online, there are some of you in this place who are struggling with joblessness. You're applying and you're interviewing and it's hard. It's hard to get a job. And you struggle with that and you attach um, naturally, we attach this identity and this effort and this uh, value to that. And so when we don't have a paycheck coming in, it hurts and it's scary. And so I want to just tell you this, that your worth is not attached to your paycheck. It's not. And your value is not attached to your paycheck. And that you are not unseen. And that you are not worthless. That we are praying with you. That we are encouraging you that I am praying that you will be able to find a job, that you will work and that you will enjoy your work, that you will be able to provide and that the ends would stretch and meet. We are praying for that for you. My first job 
uh, was uh, in Athens, Texas at a restaurant called Bean and Burger. They were well known for sushi. I'm just kidding. They were well known for Bean and Burger. We have no sushi place in Athens, Texas. but uh, that was my first job. I was a busboy. Me and my good friend Chad were um, two of the very first hires. They were opening this place up, and we were busboys. So we cleaned tables and washed dishes, uh, that kind of thing. And, and I, 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 I want to be positive, but at the same time, I just got to say, it's not extremely fulfilling work, all right? It, wasn't, it didn't really get me up in the morning. It's not what I dreamed about doing. Now, Chad, he actually stuck to it. Uh, he, he, he worked his way up, became a chef, went to culinary school, and now is a head chef at a, at a much finer establishment establishment than Bean and Burger, but at the same time, he stuck to it. But I look back on that job, and I cannot tell you how much money I made or, or, or where the money went. I can't tell you that. I can tell you a couple things, though. There's one day, uh, Chad picks up this stack of like 15 clean plates, right? And it was just like a cartoon. He's kind of like behind a, a bar there, and he picks them up, and he's about to carry them out, and he slips, just like, you know, on a cartoon. And the plates go up straight in the air, and he goes straight down, and the plates land on his chest. And he broke all of them, and, and I'm like holding my breath, and I look at him, and as soon as I knew he was all right, I bust out laughing, and I was like, we're going to get fired, you know, because you've just broke— all the plates. We have no more plates. That's the end of our job, you know. And so we did that. At another point, reversed the uh, tables there. There was this uh, dish pan with soap on top of it. And I went to reach my hand in there to see if there was any more dishes inside of that. And there weren't. But there was this giant knife laid up against the edge of that sink right there. And so I whipped it around there and I found the knife. And I hold my hand up like this and just blood is dripping down like this. And we're like, what do we do? I was like, I don't know. We're going to get fired. You know, all this kind of stuff. And I don't, I can't tell you how many times I said, we're going to get fired for this. You know, it's our first job. We thought they were so easy to lose. And turns out they're not at all. You can do all kinds of dumb things and not get fired. And so there's blood everywhere. We're like, do we just, the knife is kind of clean. No, I'm just kidding. We washed it. We washed it. Okay. So I look back on that job and I just, I just, I I will be honest with you. I learned nothing in that job. I didn't learn a single thing. I knew how to walk without dropping dishes. I knew that knives cut you. I learned nothing in that job. And there was nothing from that job that I carried with me the rest of my life, except for maybe this. Work is fun. And when you just enjoy it, and you enjoy it with your friends, it is glorifying to God. That when you think about it, I didn't get rich off of that job or inherit anything. I didn't earn any major accolades. I just had a good time and I worked. And any parent will tell you, work is good for you. I just wish we would recapture that. I wish we would recapture that tomorrow morning when we wake up and we're shuffling in there with our coffee. We would think, enjoy the work. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.